Hello, I'm James Jacobson in Hawaii. And I'm Pamela Lawrence in San Francisco. And I'm Caroline Winter in Adelaide. Welcome to Dog Edition, the first show designed for you to listen to while you walk your dogs. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into a painful subject, which is do dogs feel the same level of pain regardless of which breed they are? Caroline, you had an interesting conversation with a researcher on that. Yeah, I did, Jim. So we don't ever want our dogs to feel pain. We know that. But of course they do. And as you mentioned, we don't know how that pain changes depending on the breed of dog. And that's the burning question that researchers are looking to answer. So what about you? Does your Do you think that your Maltese are tougher than a bulldog when it comes to pain? No. <laughs> Absolutely, unequivocally, no. No, no. I think uh, my Maltese are very sensitive. I think they're they're hardy dogs, but they're pretty sensitive and uh, maybe emotional, but definitely not hardier than a bulldog. What about you, you guys? Bam, what, what, are your dogs tough? Oh, you know, I think Fudgy is the older dog. She never winces at a, you know, at a vaccination or anything like that. Really? But the little guy, mm, he's a big baby. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a very individual thing. Well, we'll find out in our first segment. What's coming up later in the show? Oh, we're going to get a glimpse of what it's like to handle large-scale dog rescues. So animal hoarding is a very big but also very misunderstood and under-researched issue. And as always, stop by the hydrant with us at the end of the show for a rundown on some of the doggy headlines that captured our attention this week. So if you love dogs as much as we do, pause what you're doing, leash up your pup, and let's take a walk. We've got a lot to talk about on today's episode of Dog Edition. Hey Pepper, want to go for a walk? Is a bulldog tougher than a Maltese when it comes to pain, or is that just how we perceive them? That's the burning question at the center of some fascinating research around whether all dog breeds are created equal when it comes to pain sensitivity. There is convincing data to show dog owners and veterinarians believe there are differences. There aren't any biological reasons for it. But finding out could have ramifications for how vets potentially recognize and treat pain in our furry best friends, and how we, as dog lovers, interact with different breeds. And so a dream team of veterinary minds at North Carolina State University have come together to do just that. Caroline has the story. We really know very little about how different breeds respond to pain. That's Margaret Gruen, Assistant Professor of Behavioural Medicine at North Carolina State University. She's overseeing the largest study of its kind, asking when it comes to the pain sensitivity threshold in dogs, are all breeds created equal? What I found in a survey that I did that kind of sparked this work was that both the general public and veterinarians believe that dogs differ in pain sensitivity, despite there being no real biological reason for that. What you believe versus what's scientifically proven are obviously two different things, and making sense of that is what Margaret and her team have embarked on. Back to the study in a moment, but first let's hear from some people at my local dog park about how they view their pooch's response to pain. I am the owner of a Lasso Apsil, who's now 10 years old, who really doesn't seem to feel any pain, um, just 
such a toughy little dog. And so why do you think that's the case? Well, the perception is that when they look in a mirror, they see a lion. So their concept of themselves is they're a big, huge dog. And that is a well-known concept. And they wear a watchdog in Tibet because they have a real bark. And so they are a little dog with a real bark. I have a Siberian Husky and uh, he is what I would consider to be a very, very robust, tough dog. But I probably have that perception also after seeing them in the wild and seeing that they will run until they bleed, their feet bleed, and they would literally keep running until they drop dead um, rather than, than not perform. Um, they are quite amazing. But in saying that, uh, I'm sure that their sensitivity level is probably as much as any dog, but they just handle it differently. So that's interesting. So when you think about different breeds of dog, do you think that there is a difference in the pain sensitivity depending on the breed? I think definitely. You see um, what we would consider to be pampered household dogs um, that look, if you look at them the wrong way, either their um, temperament um, or their mood certainly seems to change that, whereas a utility dog will definitely just get on with it. While a bulldog may seem tougher than a Maltese when it comes to handling pain, Margaret Gruen says it's important to find out if that's us stereotyping them or if there's actually some science to it. And that's what we're trying to figure out is, is there a real difference? Because if there is, that is really important for our understanding about how pain works and about pain pathways and pain genetics and might lead us forward into more um, personalized medicine and pain treatments for dogs. And if it's not, then we need to understand where that perception came from. What's behind that perception? Where do we learn it? How do we learn it? And then does that impact how we actually treat them? If we believe that Maltese is more sensitive than that bulldog, then does that actually impact the treatment that we deliver to them? She says there's a lot to gain for dogs, owners and vets from this research, regardless of the outcome. But to now, little is known about pain sensitivity thresholds because it's really hard to measure. Since September, Margaret and her team have recruited 150 dogs, all family pets, across 10 different breeds, from Chihuahuas, Maltesers and Jack Russells to Golden Retrievers, Labradors, Siberian Huskies and German Shepherds. After making sure they're in good health, each dog undergoes two pressure tests and a heat test in a round of sensitivity testing. And what we do is over a series of five trials for each of the modalities, we place the stimulus on the dog and gently increase the pressure for the pressure ones or just leave it on there for a certain amount of time for the heat and wait until the dog says, I don't want to do that. I don't like that. And so they tell us that by either pulling their leg away, which they're free to do at any time. Some will turn their head, um, give us some indication that they have detected that stimulus and would like us to stop. So we try very hard to explain to owners that we're not trying to induce pain. We're looking for the point at which the dog says, I don't like that. I'd like you to stop. Next is the fun part, where the dogs play cognitive games measuring their attention span, emotional reactivity to new objects and strangers, and even whether they're optimists or pessimists, as you'll hear here when a bowl is put down for Eve the Golden Retriever. 
which he investigates excitedly and is rewarded with a treat. The range of tests paints an overall picture of what makes the dog tick and, as Margaret explains, will help them figure out whether some breeds are more sensitive to stimuli or more emotionally reactive in general. So if we find that there's no difference in pain sensitivity, then we need to understand whether the difference that people are perceiving is because of some difference in their response to, say, the novel object. Do we see a breed difference there? Or is there something else that's feeding into that that perception. The team have a few more dogs to test and they'll start analysing their data in July. They expect to have results by September, October, but there's no sneak peeks just yet, Margaret tells me, just lots of anticipation. I'm so excited about either potential outcome because one means that we need to really understand where the perception came from and that is fascinating too, but I would also be equally excited to find that there is a difference that then allows us to understand more about how we tailor our treatments for particular dogs, how we understand something about pain biology. So I think when the findings are actually published, this is going to be really, really interesting. But uh, Dr. Margaret Gruen wouldn't give me any hints on just whether there are differences. She was holding an <laughs> awfully close to the vest. I, I, I like that. We, we've been talking to some scientists recently, and like they won't share their information until they want to share their information with the public. Well, I also think it answered the, 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 say, the thing that I was saying in the top of the show, which is that I believe, I believe that she'll find out that Maltese and perhaps other breeds are more emotionally reactive than like, than pain threshold, but we'll find out. And we got to cover this story when, whenever they come out with their results. We will. I mean, perception and reality, such a, a, a cavernous, you know, valley between the two. So looking forward to those, uh, those results. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dog Edition. And now a message from your dog. Oh, every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I wonder as many beach days as possible. Oh, I want to run. I want to sniff. Ooh, I want to find a good stick to carry. Oh, I want to roll in the grass. Oh, and warm my belly in the sun. Oh, I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want ever pop. The green, glassy beef liver smell wakes my senses. Oh, you may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. <laughs> it infuses any food you give me with healthy life vibrancy. Oh, <laughs> I can feel it. Ever pop traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S., Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Welcome back to Dog Edition. Unimaginable, deplorable, disgusting. 
These are the types of words that might come to mind when you hear about animal hoarding. The people who hoard, or collect, animals are often dismissed as incompetent, cruel, and malicious. And that's mainly because very little is understood about this psychiatric issue. Almost no psychiatric literature exists on the topic. And to date, no research has addressed strategies for resolving cases of animal hoarding. What is known is animal hoarding is a complex problem encompassing public health, mental health, and animal cruelty. I would say we do hoarding cases every month. I mean, it's like insane how many hoarding cases there are out there. To understand how big the problem of dog hoarding is, we spoke with Melissa Basilar. During the pandemic, she transitioned her luxury dog hotel business to meet the need of large-scale rescues. It was like pandemic, no borders, no daycare dogs, because everybody was home and scared to leave their house. And we're like, okay, so now we have these two empty hotels. I have a ton of staff that's required to be here 24 hours a day. Like, what are we going to do? And so I said, God, you know, why don't we give our hotel to these dogs that need a place to be and let's start bringing them in. Melissa is no stranger to dog rescues. Her nonprofit, Wagmore Pets, has been rescuing dogs and making them available for adoption for years. Her location on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, California, launched her rescue into the spotlight. In fact, you may have heard of her. She's been dubbed the celebrity pet matchmaker. Before the pandemic, Ellen DeGeneres and Portia adopted a dog. Chrissy Teigen and John Legend adopted a dog. Jennifer Aniston adopted a dog. Sandra Bullock adopted a dog. Um, Ariana Grande. So when she got the call from a California shelter asking for help with a rescue, she felt uniquely qualified to offer her space and her staff to the cause. Maybe like April or May, we get a phone call from one of the shelters we partnered with, and they're like, listen, is there any way you could take a few Pomeranians? Like we found a trailer and inside this trailer, there are 52 Pomeranians. They were just living in their own feces. Like just like, they just had dreadlocks of, of dried poop. And I, I called my general manager, Ellie, and I said, look, there's 52. There's a rescue group that will take like 20. So there's still like 30 something left. She goes, let's get them. Within five hours, we had crates of Pomeranians in our front lobby. My groomers came back to work. The, the groomers started shaving dogs. My staff was making bowls of food. And but I mean, and we all just rallied and we got all of these dogs in. We fed them all, we groomed them all. Melissa leaned on her community of supporters and followers on social media to help transport dogs from that large scale rescue. Okay, A, we have this community of people that wanna help. B, we can take on a of dogs at a time, which we never knew we could do. So that was our first big one. And the shelter was like, so you guys will do hoarding cases? We're like, we will do hoarding cases. This was easy for us. Her second big hoarding rescue was anything but easy. I get a phone call. She's like, there's a house that has 15 terriers. These dogs are in the front yard and there's like a makeshift fence and they can get in the road and the neighbors are shooting BB guns at them. And I'm like, what? I'm like, yes, we will come tomorrow. Nothing could have prepared Melissa and her team for what they found when she arrived at the scene the next day. 
we pull up and there's a trailer and there's mounds of garbage and there are at this point from the car at least 50 terriers like coming out of the garbage coming and I was like oh my god she documented the rescue on an Instagram live stream hey guys we're um, here in Bakersfield at the property right now there's dogs everywhere there's dogs in the street there's dogs all over only one case series on animal hoarding appears in medical or psychological literature most participants reported their collecting started in childhood many had no telephone public utilities or plumbing and many hoarded inanimate objects as well so we walk into this front and every time i walk I see another 20 dogs at least. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming, so shocking. And the woman who lived in the trailer, she lived in a trailer with no running water and no electricity. Many of the collectors emphasized that their animals gave them unquestioning and uncritical love. They tended to view themselves as rescuers of suffering or unloved animals. They worried the dogs would be euthanized if they didn't take them in. You know, the woman, the thing is with these hoarders, from what I've found, like, they, they start out doing a good thing, but they don't have the resources or the funds or the knowledge to spay and neuter. Because if she had 15 dogs that were all spay and neutered, that is a lot of dogs, but it's manageable. On You know, she didn't mean to do this. This is a mental illness. This isn't like, oh, I'm going to torture these dogs. She was trying to help these dogs. A more recent survey of animal shelter operators detailed 54 cases. In 69% of those cases, animal feces and urine accumulated in living areas. And over a quarter of the hoarder's beds were soiled with feces or urine. The house was something like you've, I mean, you haven't seen it in movies. You've not seen anything like this before. There wasn't even a place to step where there wasn't poop. There wasn't an inch of the bed that there wasn't poop. This woman was living in that. Dead or sick animals were discovered in 80% of the cases. And in more than half of those, the hoarder would not acknowledge the problem. This is a situation Melissa encountered during this rescue. <coughs> the smell is just... Oh what? Is there a dog in there? The situation was too emotional and devastating for Melissa to continue with the live stream. People who hoard dogs are often surprised and hurt by the news that they can't keep the dogs. We got every single dog. We, Ellie was like, look, ma'am, I will help you. We will help you. You cannot keep any. Like, this is like, you can't. You can't. We need to take them. This rescue was as much about the human as it was the dog. We need to get you cleaned up, we need to get this house cleaned up, and then we can move on. So we took 120 dogs. Every single female was pregnant, and mind you, this is during 
the height of the pandemic where vets didn't even want to spay and neuter. So we're like begging vets to help us. And, you know, we're like, at least let us get the boys neutered, please. Like, let us get the boys neutered because we don't want more babies, you know? So the total number of dogs saved from that situation ended up being closer to 300. There's no research into treatments or strategies for resolving the behavior of animal hoarding. Sadly, most animal hoarders repeat the behavior. In the case of the woman in Bakersfield, Melissa is keeping an eye on the situation. And I go to Bakersfield once or twice a month and I drive past her house. I drive past the trailer. I want to make sure there's no dogs there. Because I want to, like, nip it in the bud. Like, if she gets a dog, let's get this dog fixed. During the pandemic, Melissa transformed one of her luxury dog hotels into a full-service rescue operation. She's committed to keeping up and even expanding her rescue efforts. Truly, the pandemic made me see that my passion is going back to dog rescue. Because I was doing it so small, and I wasn't, I wasn't out there in a hoarding house pulling dogs. And when I started to actually get to do that, because yes, this is like what gives me life, like it breathes into me and I love doing it. And I I will do it every day of my life. Even the, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of sadness in dog rescue, but in the end, like there's more good than bad. And the good in the Bakersfield rescue comes from the fact that all but one of the dogs and puppies were adopted into their forever homes. Yeah, I'm hopeful that last uh, dog's going to get adopted, though. <laughs> I think all 200. I, it's, she's doing amazing work, and it must be so taxing I to see those things and to smell those smells and to be there. She's doing extraordinary work, and with a little help from her friends in Hollywood, which I think is really nice. Exactly, yes. Now let's divert ourselves over to the hydrant, hopefully not a smelly place, for a rundown on some of the doggy headlines that have captured our attention this week. Kara, what caught your attention? Well, I know we'll be doing some stories on pet-friendly offices and workplaces, but what if you're continuing to work from home and your pooch plans to stay firmly planted by your side or on your lap? Enter Swedish inventor Simone Jetsch and a rather funny gal, I might add. After a fruitless search on Google for office chairs that are pet compatible, she decided to make her own. I don't know if you've seen this video, but it's worth a watch. No. What she came up with is pretty pretty genius, actually. It's a raised chair or more like a cushioned benched bed with enough room for her. Yeah and her pup scraps to sit both perched at the desk. And then there's like a staircase that wraps around the back so the dog can get up and down and a little hidey hole hutch underneath for some quiet time. I think we might need to review that one. Uh, <laughs> my wife has started, uh, you know, getting out into the world and going and doing things like Pilates, much to the dismay of our dogs, who are just totally devastated. Like, you left me for an hour and a half? <laughs> I had to stick with Dad by him? Uh, our dogs really would love to be able to be tightly uh, connected. That sounds so cool. We'll put a link in the show notes. And then... Uh, <clears throat> Whoever this is, if you want us to review one, send us a send us a chair. We'll check it out. Pam, what'd you see? Ah, well, I came across a story that starts way back in 1997 in New Orleans. There's a woman who 
at 14 years of age at the time, rescued a pit bull from a canal. And, of course, she was bitten for her for her good deed. Um, fast, fast forward 24 years later, and her daughter is walking along that same canal and, uh, and sees a dog struggling in the water and jumps in and, and saves, saves the dog, also, also a pit bull. So this mother-daughter duo both rescued dogs from this same canal 24 years. No. Apart. It's time to fence the canal, I think. <laughs> I think so. And and speaking of mothers and daughters, I'm sure you guys saw the coverage that made the headlines all over the, the world last week about this brown bear in, uh, in a place in California, Bradbury, California, that had scaled a fence and was going to uh, and had a little dog in its mouth, and it was about to was about to bring it back. And the 17 year old owner of this dog chased the bear away, and basically was a giant hero. She was feeling that she had to like save her little puppies and the the whole the whole crew that she had there. And uh, but she really scared this giant bear. Uh, just with her sheer tenacity of force, and again, a very heroic, but perhaps a little <clears throat> uh, in the moment, seventeen-year-old. <laughs> You're being very gentle. She body slammed <laughs> that bear. <laughs> she body slammed that bear, and I think all the uh, the wildlife people say this is not something you should do. Uh, but hey, she loved her dogs, and and she would do anything to save them. And I understand that. It's remarkable to watch, certainly from Australia, where we don't have bears, but what incredibly large creatures and what a, a brave, as you say, brave or um, focused <laughs> young woman. Um, that video is really worth watching for anyone who hasn't seen it, which um, I know we'll have in our show notes. We certainly will. This might be a hot take, but I want to give a shout out to the bear who was protecting her two little bear cubs. Uh, sure, the bear was protecting her bear cubs, but not from the dogs. Yes, what? I guess I missed that part of the story. What happened? The bear was walking along the wall, and yeah. the dogs came rushing out to the wall and started barking at the bear. And right. so the bear reached down to swat the uh, dogs away. The bear cubs took off. The mama sort of stood her ground, and then the woman came out and body slammed her. So she, the bear was per- <sighs> trying to protect her little cubs from the dogs who rushed out to uh, bark at it. I didn't get that piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so there's this protective instinct. between That was amazing. What you see in slow-mo. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't get that. I was just, I was so mesmerized by this uh, 17-year-old. But you're right. We should give the bear credit. Yeah, yeah I got to stick up for the bears out here. <laughs> it's a California thing, I guess. Well, that is all we have time for today. I want to thank you for bringing Dog Edition along with you on your walk. And we will be back with another episode next week. But chances are you and your dog will be taking a walk between now and then. And we have something else for you to listen to. If you're interested in hearing more from some of our guests, please check out DPN's sister show, The Long Leash, for Jim's extended conversations. This week, you can hear my conversation with Kristen Morrison, owner of the Six Figure Pet Business Academy. And follow Dog Edition in your favorite podcast app so you can always take us along on your dog walk next time. 
on the next episode of Dog Edition, Dean Koontz. Yeah, him, the international best-selling author, who you may be surprised to find out is a massive dog lover. And I sniff out a story about COVID sniffing dogs and their role in getting us through the pandemic. Visit dogedition.com. There is a button on the bottom right of every episode page so you can easily leave us a voicemail and share your stories and thoughts with us. And check the show notes for links and information about the guests on this episode. And here's a reminder, we are looking for correspondence as we continue to grow this podcast and our dog podcast network. So if you are a content producer or a journalist, a podcaster, or an audio storyteller who loves dogs, check out our 101 Dog Stories contest with over $15,000 in prize money. And we'd love you to join our pack. Be sure to follow Dog Edition and tell a friend about the show. I'm Caroline Winter, your resident newshound. And I'm Pamela Lawrence. See you at the dog park. I'm James Jacobson. Again, thank you for listening today. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.